Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. My name is Daniel Foch. I'm a real estate broker practicing in the greater Toronto area with an interest in real estate investing coast to coast in the Canadian market. I'm joined here by my co-host, Nick Hill. And today we're going to be talking about strange bull case for Canadian real estate. And it comes in the form of a relatively unknown billionaire named Elon Musk. And I'm not a huge fan of Elon Musk, to be honest with you. I'm not not a fan. I don't dislike him. But I'm, I feel like he is one of those love or hate people. But I'm kind of just one of those... I'm one of those individuals who's like almost indifferent. I think that you know he exists and he's relatively cool and there's stuff that's worth discussing here. So my thoughts are, you know, between Starlink, off-grid power, autonomous vehicles and the amount of battery metals and EV industry exposure that Canada has, Elon Musk could actually potentially be a major bull case for Canadian real estate and especially rural Canadian real estate. So, before I get started on this whole thing, Nick, why don't you Tell me how things are going for you. Things are going well. I had some unfortunate tenant issues the other day. I had some tenants vacate the property after nine months and unfortunately just left the property in just not a good state. They were essentially living in squalor and you know, I just don't understand why people have to disrespect the property to that extent. But regardless of that, I'm doing well. I'm excited for this episode. I, like you, am have been an Elon Musk fan in the past, have have not been an Elon Musk fan, have been confused, have been seeing the headlines. So well, I think what we're going to do today is talk a little bit about Elon Musk, talk a little bit about Canada, and then talk about how Elon Musk can have an actual effect on the Canadian economy, and more so what we usually discuss on this podcast, Canadian real estate and Canadian real estate investing. Does that sound good, Dan? Sounds lovely. Okay, beauty. So let's dive right into it. Elon Musk, who is believed, I believe his first name actually is Elongated Muskrat. I'm kidding. That's didn't even it's get a, a laugh with you, eh? Wow. It's all <laughs> If you're not laughing, I can imagine no one listening is laughing. I did chuckle when I read it in the show notes and I just forgot to chuckle. My fake fake chuckle is horrible, yeah. (laughs) Okay. So we all know him as kind of the Tony Stark-like billionaire who owns the likes of Tesla, SpaceX, Starlink, The Boring Company, and also for having a ton of kids with crazy unpronounceable names that apparently just keep popping up. But whatever you know him for, and whether or not you like him, he has certainly been a captivating character in both the business community, as well as more recently, the pop culture community. He's always been making headlines, but recently he's been talking about real estate. So Elon Musk, the world's richest person, has sold all seven of his homes in California within the last year for a total of $128 million. Just a week after all these sales, his part-time partner and singer Grimes claimed that her former partner sometimes lives below the poverty line. There's this great quote here I'm going to read from Grimes from Vanity Fair. Okay, here we go. And I quote, bro does not live like a billionaire. Bro lives at times below the poverty line to the point where I was like, can we not even live in an insecure $40,000 house? 
where the neighbors like film us and there's no security and I'm like eating peanut butter for eight days in a row, unquote. Sorry, could we just pause there? So one, she calls him bro. Is that? Okay. (laughs) Apparently. I usually opt for the, you know, baby sweetie pie, something like that. Yeah, bro is a new term of endearment. I guess all my bros are now my my life partners as well. (laughs) So obviously there's a bit of confusion there between what Grimes and, and Elon Musk's likes. But in May 2022, Elon made kind of extraordinary announcement on Twitter as he has known to do so saying that he would own no home and sell almost all physical possessions. And just a matter of days later, his homes were all listed on Zillow. Now, the 50-year-old CEO is residing in one small rental home believed to be worth no more than $50,000 near his aerospace company in Boca Chica, Texas. After selling his seven properties, the house he lives in now costs around $50,000. That's less than the cost of a Tesla Model S. It's a prefabricated product made by the housing startup Boxable. Dan, I don't know if you've seen these guys. Super cool. We should probably do an episode on yeah. them. The total square footage, 375 square feet with a kitchen, a bedroom, and a bathroom. By the way, he made approximately $25 million profit on those seven California homes on the sale of those homes. So today we're going to be looking at how Elon Musk, a man who now owns no real estate, rents a tiny home and has more billions in the bank than anybody ever is actually a bull case for Canadian real estate. What do you think about what I just said about Elon, Dan? What a guy, eh? I mean, yeah, the guy, he never ceases to amaze you. And it feels like the Tony Starkness of it is is the fact that his life just sounds like a movie, like, <laughs> and oftentimes so ridiculous, like that it has to be written. Right? It really so, is. I mean, look, it's all like actually kind of cool at face value, but some he almost just ruins it by like being Elon Musk sometimes. <laughs> like if it was like George Clooney or something, I'd be like, eh, maybe. we got to get Clooney to billionaire status I mean. as soon as possible. Everyone go drink Casamigos. And Nespresso. I've been and doing Nespresso. Life, <laughs> So before we get into the bull case, I just want to point out two other points that I think are going to be very important to know before we get into this discussion. And that's Canadian land demographics. And if you've been listening to the show for a while now, you've probably heard us talk a lot about land. We did a whole episode on crown land and, and talked a lot about the demographics of the cities, the major cities and the populace in them. But just as a reminder, if this is your first time listening or just to add some context, Canada, the fourth largest country by land area and second largest by total area. The vast majority of the country is very sparsely inhabited, though, with most of the population south of the 55th parallel. Just over 60% of Canadians just live in two cities, or sorry, two provinces, and that is Ontario and Quebec. Despite that, 90% of Canadians live within 150 miles of the U.S. border. So take that in and, and keep that in mind as we start to unravel why Elon Musk may actually be a great bull case for Canadian real estate. Dan, take us away with some of your great points you've got here. Yeah. So I think that, you know, especially for rural Canadian real estate, there are three key reasons that, and it's not to say that Elon Musk on his own is a bull case for Canadian real estate, but there are several things that Elon Musk is involved in that, from my perspective, create a bull case for Canadian real estate independently and in combination. So the first two are changing the way that rural properties connect with the outside world, right? So number one, being off-grid power through 
at the solar, the rooftop solar shingles, et cetera, where, you know, rural properties now have less reliance or less dependence on needing to be close to a power grid as a result of that technology existing. So that's through the battery walls and through the solar roof shingles, et cetera, which, you know, if they are ever able to meet the promises that you hear about in some of these pitch decks could, from my perspective, be extremely substantial. On the same token, I think Starlink could decentralize the dependence on broadband internet. So wires, you know, these Bell 5 wires that you see under under the ground, now all of a sudden you don't need a subdivision or a home if you're just trying to develop a, an individual home to be close to those things in order to be connected to the internet. And I will elaborate more specifically on some research that I did in the past around this, pre-COVID actually, which is pretty interesting. And the other two pieces are autonomous vehicles. So, you know, the main is, or sorry, electric vehicles, let's say, but autonomous vehicles would basically create this almost like transit connected area, you know, anywhere that's connected with a roadway. If you have autonomous vehicles, you basically turn the entire transportation network into transit, right? And we know that transit is a huge catalyst for property values in urban markets, you know, that's where people are building taller buildings, etc. The other piece is, you know, electric vehicles through Tesla are something that Canada is uniquely positioned to provide a lot of value to through access to battery metals and minerals. And we have a lot of those in the Canadian market, especially in rural areas. So I think we'll maybe start off by talking a little bit about technology, unless there's anything you wanted to add there. One, I found it interesting. I love how you got just as a, a tidbit. He did go to Queens. He does have some Canadian history here. I'm, I'm sure most people knew that. But I just want to do a quick recap. And just in case anyone isn't as familiar with Elon Musk's many ventures as we are. And again, this is not us fanboying over him. This is pretty legitimate information that Dan's been compiling actually for years. So off-grid power helps with you know, people that need that, that are, you know, trying to be live a more self-sustaining lifestyle further away from major cities. Same with Starlink, right? That's his internet company that's powered by SpaceX. The autonomous vehicle, I love that argument, creating, turning transportation into transit. And then I think the last one's really cool too, because Canada actually sits on a ton of natural resources that are needed for exactly what he's trying to do. So, I just wanted to do a little bit of a recap there. So so keep it going here, Dan. Yeah, for sure. So let's start off with just talking about technology, right? So the three pieces of technology, you could you could group them all together because they're all providing or they're all supporting the same hypothesis here for Canadian real estate. And that is that they make rural real estate easier to develop, but in easier to access. They better connect rural real estate to the outside world, right? And so now all of a sudden in a country that claims that we have all this land scarcity, right? In Canada, we've talked about this concept a couple of times. We have a huge housing crisis in the Canadian market. There's more people are looking for homes than homes that exist, and we cannot keep up with that excess demand. Now you've got all these rural areas that are less regulated by environmental concerns like conservation authorities, as an example. They're all already connected to major highway networks because of the industry in these areas or because of the history that history required them to be. But they don't necessarily have things like broadband internet, right? So broadband internet is basically large wires, a big band, right? When you hear about bandwidth, it's a big wire that goes and carries all of the internet into, you know, a lot of these areas. So most of the subdivisions, as an example, when you have five, you're on a fiber optic network. This real estate development depends on 
these utilities, right? Real estate development depends on utilities infrastructure. So typically developers are more attracted to areas that have access to these things, right? And so you have an increased likelihood of wanting to develop a property if it's connected to electricity, right? Because it's going to cost you hundreds of thousands of dollars to, to bring your own electricity to that property, right? We've spoken about that before in the, in the land, right? Where that's the difference between raw and, and vacant land. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So yeah, so raw land doesn't have utilities. Well, it's not even available for utilities, right? So you can either spend 250k finding the most closely approximate power line and then running a line to your place or a road or whatever to your place, right? Like there's all these different ways where homes are technically off-grid. They're not connected to the grid of services that the government offers or that these public utility companies offers. If you start making, removing those, think of those as economic barriers to entry, right? So, you know, the principle in, in the economy is barriers to entry prevent people from entering a market, right? So the market here being building a house or adding a unit to the housing supply of Canada. If you start removing those barriers to entry, right? Number one being, I don't have electricity on the property, right? Because we know we can service rural properties with well and septic, right? That's legal. And that's been going on for a long time, as long as we've been using, you know, water and sewer systems, municipal services, right? So well and septic development is just as common as water and sewers, especially in rural areas. It's not uncommon for properties to be developed that way. So you know you can have your water and sewer handled on site, right? But you can't, in most cases, have electricity handled on site, right? Your heating and electricity. So a lot of people are doing, you know, talking about things like geothermal as an example, right? You can actually run a, a grid of geothermal to pull power from the earth to heat your property through a heat pump. So it's another on-site way. These are existing approved technologies. But electricity has always been a tough one to do cheaply, right? And you need electricity. I, I know very few people who have been able to live without it. And if you have access to Starlink Internet, as an example, there's really no point in not having Internet unless you figured out a way to make everything run on you know, on batteries or you're running into the, the nearest small town to charge your laptop every day or whatever, right? So... So the question becomes, how do we get electricity? And now we've seen, you know, through SolarCity, uh, you know, and now a Tesla and Starlink grouped company, the exploration of basically creating roof shingles that are solar capable, right? And then we have the Tesla battery wall as well, right? So if we build an on-site system where you can now can generate and store your electricity, your dependence on being close to a power line is gone, right? So now all of a sudden you've unlocked another hundreds of thousands of acres of land, maybe millions of acres of land in the Canadian landscape that in a lot of cases, and you hear this a lot, unregulated townships, right? You hear a lot of these people talk about, like a lot of people ask me about what my perspective is on unorganized townships. These are basically municipalities that they're not even municipally organized. So like you go buy a piece of land in an unorganized township in Northern Ontario, Northern Quebec, you know, there's a lot of them in, in Manitoba, Saskatchewan, etc. You can build whatever you want. It's like Texas. You can literally build whatever you want. They can't <laughs> do anything. I mean, obviously, you assume all the risk that goes with that, but you can do whatever you want, like basically whatever you want it's with it. It's kind of like the new frontier, the new real estate frontier. Yeah. I mean, maybe. Like you know, The challenge is you're also in the middle of nowhere. You don't have internet access, right? You don't have cell phone reception. You don't have electricity. You don't have running water, right? So all of these things now become these barriers to entry. If you start removing those things, the ability for people to inhabit that land becomes a lot easier, right? And as that as that happens, to me, that drastically changes 
the landscape of Canadian real estate. I sent you an article that I discussed and the most you know the easiest comparison to this would be what I mentioned in that article. I wrote this in like August of, of 2019 about long distance phone calls, right? So unlimited long distance calling and then in, I think in August of 2019 unlimited 5G inter- cell phone came out, right? So it was like now all of a sudden as long as you're within that 5G or as long as you're within the cell phone network, you could functionally be able to access internet anywhere without needing to be hooked up to five or whatever. And I felt that that would change the landscape, right? Yeah. I mean, I think the points are super cool. You know, removing those barriers to entry, right? You, as you said, water, you know, septic and, and well have always been have always been options. But yeah, I mean, a major barrier to entry, especially now that we've seen, you know, the work from home, the changing demographics due to work. I think you're you're hitting the nail on the head here. This is This is really interesting. Yeah. So, you know, I'll wrap it up. Like I'll wrap this segment up specifically with the big advantage that we hear this concept of housing crisis in Canada all the time. And the reality is that land costs are one of the big prohibitors to us being able to build more housing, right? But it's not just that. It's that also like you can go find cheap land. I can go find land in Canada for free, to be honest with you. Like it's not actually that hard. There are municipalities giving away land as long as you agree to build a house. And it's not exceptionally cheap to build either, but let's just focus on the land piece. If you make the cheap land more accessible for people to live a, a normal, you know, life and be connected with the outside world, especially with, you know, the advent of work from home and all of these different things, that's where you start actually really attacking a variable that matters from my perspective and bringing housing to the market. And I, you know that I invest a lot in, in rural areas for another reason, which we're going to get to, which is why, why am I bullish on a lot of these rural markets, certain rural markets, especially, but you know, I think that especially the broader piece of my thesis is the demographics in Canada are, you know, we have 10 million baby boomers approximately approaching the age of, you know, being seniors, right? Not all of them are going to be able to afford to retire in the places that they currently live. Some of them want to, you know, cut that that inheritance up, spread it out between their kids or whatever. And a lot of them, they don't want to be in urban areas, right? As young people, we're, a lot of us want to be urban, so we don't think in the minds of people who aren't, but I'm from a small town and I live in a small town. And there are a lot of people, especially baby boomers who don't want to live in a rocking metropolis, right? So, you know, a lot of my tenants in some of these more rural areas are seniors, right? And they're coming to enjoy a more simple life, to have some some peace and quiet in a rural setting, right? So I think that as you see that demographic shift, rural areas could potentially serve those markets exceptionally well, right? I couldn't agree more. And I actually would take it one step further and, and say that I don't, ju- I mean, I completely agree with the baby boomers and the seniors, et cetera. But I would say, I think I see more people, you know, we're both in our thirties, early thirties. I, I can see a lot more people in and around our age between 30 and 40 that, that maybe want a little bit of that lifestyle as well, you know, and, and they're going and starting and if they work from home or they've got a, some kind of business that all they need is a laptop and internet connection and they want some acreage. Well, guess what? You can now afford to do so and you can now afford to power it and have internet and live, you know, a more seemingly normal connected life out in the middle of nowhere if you want. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, we will jump to the next one, but I agree with you, man. Like, and I think as you start to see new, it is, that's sort of the the bottom end of it, right? Is like, if you start to see new household formation happening, because millennials have been very slow to, you know, hook up and start their own nuclear family, Right. We're all like a lot of single, the fastest growing household size in Canada right now is one, 
right? And a lot of that's because of boomers being widowed. But the other part is that, you know, our generation, we're super afraid of commitment, right? Nobody wants to go fall in love and start a family, right? But as we do... Too many Tinder dates have gone wrong yeah, for a yeah. lot of people. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, the, so I think that there are multiple secular trends that could allude to Northern Ontario, Northern Quebec, you know, some of these more rural areas. Let's just say anything above the 55th parallel, to be honest. And it doesn't even have to be north, but like there are like there's a stretch of land I talk about all the time between Montreal and Ottawa, right? Where like you can literally pick off massive acreages for nothing. I literally I had a, a client who wanted to purchase a property. It was highway accessible, less than an hour to Montreal, okay? And they wanted to put a bunch of tiny homes on it and basically start a commune. Like the, and they were very, very far down the road of going about doing that. Like that's meaningful development of housing, right? Starting a basically a de facto trailer park, but like people who want to create affordable housing, right? So, you know, it's a fringe conversation, but these are important conversations to have because I think when you think about becoming a landlord, when you think about, you have to think about the product you're delivering and it's a house in a lot of cases, right? Or it's a house or a, or a unit to do business in or whatever, but you're delivering real estate to an end user, right? You're delivering something to an end user. Anyway, let's pivot to segment the second segment here of why it makes me more bullish on those rural areas. Why I think that beyond the thesis of you know seniors wanting a simple life and young people starting their own houses and potentially wanting to live in rural areas, why else are rural areas good? Yeah, that is a great question. Is this the segment number three we've got here? It is, yeah. Okay, well, let me take that away because we are talking about metal. I'm not talking like the horns up, let's rock, let's rock and roll, baby. I'm talking about hard metals, precious metals that Canada has a ton of. So per an NPR article entitled, How a Handful of Metals Could Determine the Future of the Electric Car Industry. Electric cars use a ton of metals like minerals, lithium, cobalt, and nickel. So currently, the existing supply chain is dominated by one single country. And no, unfortunately, it's not Canada. It's not the US. It's China. We just did a full episode on their housing market. If you haven't heard that, go back and check it out. So it's not that China won the geological lottery. It just happened to have really rich deposits of these minerals. In fact, the richest deposits are in places like the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Australia, and Chile. But China set out to intentionally to dominate the processing of these minerals. So even though they don't have them, they have created the, the best aftermarket processing as part of a plan to become a major player in the, I guess, supply chain of electric vehicles. Yeah. And, you know, the main takeaway that you can see from the article here is that the U.S. wants to reduce its reliance or dependence on China for these battery metal supply chains, right? And they are our largest trading partner, right? And they're extremely close to us. So I think it presents keen opportunity for Canada to capitalize on the metals that we have present in our country and the trading partner and massive economy that we have to the south of us. And in combination, those two could, from my perspective, really create a bull case for this to be the future growth of the Canadian economy, especially in such that we are going to be desperate to diversify the Canadian economy over the next little while. And what, we can't, it can't just be real estate anymore? Come on. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, and I think the most recent stat I saw was like, 
10% of the Canadian GDP was residential investment, which is basically like renovations, real estate transfer costs, et cetera, right? So real estate commissions, renovations, basically like anything that pays you and I and all of our contractor buddies. Right, Uh exactly. (laughs) And that's before you think about like, you know, the tertiary, all the things that are in the banks, et cetera. So, you know, this is a major point of importance for, for Canada moving forward. And I think that as we're trying to continue to attract global talent in STEM careers, et cetera, and continue to create jobs for the, you know, tight job market that we're seeing right now, this is going to be the next place that we explore. You know, the article also states that Tesla actually calls mines directly, you know, to circle back to the Elon Musk part. And if you actually just Google like Tesla and Canadian mines or Elon Musk and Canadian mines, a handful of headlines come up like Tesla's in talks to obtain Canadian nickel through Brazilian miner uh, Vale. Canadian miner answers electric car maker Elon Musk's call for zero carbon nickel, et cetera, et cetera. And this isn't just, I mean, that was like that example was, I think, out, out just outside of Timmins. And Valet & Co. is pretty active in the Sudbury area. But this isn't just an Ontario thing, right? Yeah. I mean, we see this phenomenon happening all over the country. Uh, another article entitled, New Road Paves the Way for Canada's First Primary Cobalt Mine, outlines a project the Tilco Highway, a 97-kilometer two-lane gravel all-season road to Wati, constructed by North Star Infrastructure under a 28-year, $400 million design, build, operate, and maintain contract with the government of the Northwest Territories. The capital costs include $53 million in federal government contributions through the Canadian Infrastructure Fund. So what does that mean? It means that when we find a mine that works – the government gets involved. There's new infrastructure built around that. And what do we start to see? And, and Dan, we, we have planned on doing an episode about this, and this kind of is a little teaser about it. But when you find a mine, you know, and you have to build a 100-kilometer all-season road to it, you're probably going to start to want to build some other infrastructure around that. That's a 28-year contract. People aren't – you know, this is not a, a thing that's going to come and go. There's There should be and could be a whole – community built up around this, right? This is, you know, is this a small factor on how to solve the housing crisis? Just throwing that out there. We'll probably discuss that more later. I mean, it's really interesting too. Like if you boil it down, if they're willing to inject $400 million of capital into this project, they would expect, they being the government, right, would expect that the economic development, the output that's going to come from that would substantiate that investment, right? So that could come through taxes, that could come through the creation of jobs, that could come through the creation of industry around these things, right? They don't just throw infrastructure. I mean, okay, maybe in Ontario, there was a couple of famous examples where they were building highways to nowhere, and there's implied cronyism or whatever around (laughs) that stuff. And I won't even touch on that. But you know, they're not doing things like people don't just go and build $400 million roads, right? We don't have the output levels of China where we can just build massive ghost cities and then tear them down when nobody decides to live in them, right? So the question here becomes, you know, what does this all mean, right? And you got to boil it down. You almost go all the way back to the geopolitics of it. So we can rewind a little bit to World War II when Inco, before Valet took over Inco, their Sudbury nickel mines were critical during World War II. This is an article by Stan Sudall on republicofmining.com. So by anyone's estimation, the highway, highlight of Sudbury's social calendar, Sudbury is a town in Northern Ontario for those who the, who don't know about it. And it's basically a local economy built around the nickel industry. In 1939, 
was the visit of King George and Queen Elizabeth on June 5th, accompanied by Prime Minister Mackenzie King. And this is the first time a British monarch had ever visited Canada, a, living, a reigning British monarch, let alone Sudbury, as a testimony to the growing importance of the region's vital nickel mines. And so basically, the queen actually went down into the mine here, and people were almost saying, yeah. And so, and, and towards the end, or the other part of the article, it says, you know, Sudbury and Northeastern Ontario gold mining centers in Timmins and Kirkland Lake were among the few economic bright spots. This is important part in a country devastated by the Great Depression. So, you know, imagining that we're staring down the barrel of a recession here, I don't think I'm being bearish by saying that. I think everybody's talking about it now. We know that we're seeing economic contraction happening, right? What components of the economy, it goes back to that diversification that I'm thinking about, what components of the economy can we lean on to get us through this, right? And then the question becomes, you know, why am I talking about mining and all this stuff? You know, before the the parallel was obviously pretty clear, right? Off-grid housing, you know, making technology, removing barriers to entry. Why is mining so relative here? Well, you can identify broad trends in which you can invest in housing exposure to these industries, right? So if you, as an example, want Kirkland Lake being a great example, house prices grew massively year over year. It's almost impossible to find a rental or a house to purchase there. And they're all being leased up by businesses. Like you go, go call some, call a realtor in, in Kirkland Lake. All these houses are being leased up at massive rates by people going to work in the mines there because of the expansion and the job creation that's going on up there. Right. Very cool. Yeah. I guess now's a good time to just go over some of these major mines. And, you know, again, I think this is a good time to look at these locations and then possibly look at them as an indicator for future growth from a Canadian real estate investor perspective. Yeah, for sure. Like I think that, you know, we talk a lot about when we did our 25 point deal checklist, we talk a lot about understanding major, like in the stock market, people call these catalysts. Where can you identify opportunities for growth that are also in markets that are inefficiently priced, right? If you go look at house prices around any of these mines, like these are in the middle of nowhere, right? And I'm not saying like go long and lever up and buy a bunch of these things, but understand how all of these things work as components of the economy. And you can get, if you like real estate and you're also bullish on mining, you can get exposure to the industry by buying houses associated with certain areas like this, right? So, sorry, give me the list. Yeah, totally. And I'm just going to rifle through this pretty quickly because there's a few things that you should know about each one of these. First thing, we're not saying, you know, just because there's a mine there, there's going to be a major uptick in real estate. Go invest. That's not what we're saying at all. We're saying these are metrics that you should be aware of. So, for instance, Raglan Mines, mine located in Quebec, it will only operate until 2027. So that could actually be a possible bear case, right? We see people move in there and then we see a whole bunch of people move out when the mine shuts down. Will the mine actually shut down in 2027 or is that just until their current contract goes? I don't know. Voices Bay Mine in Newfoundland and Labrador, it will operate until 2034. The Subri area mines, obviously located in Ontario, will operate until 2035. Now, you know, if the Sudbury mines close down, do you think Sudbury is going to dry up? Probably not. And I can't see them closing down either. The Coleman mine, I don't know if it's Vale or Vale. I've heard Vale from like the people in the north, but it could be Vale. I don't could know. Could be Vale. Well, I'm sure we'll find out later. <laughs> people will correct us. So that one will operate until 2030. And then the Nunavik nickel project that is in Quebec will operate until 2028. So again, Dan, remind everyone why we're talking about mines and and what that has to do with Canadian real estate investing. 
Yeah, for sure. You know, I actually think it's good that they like I like this because they literally give you a very finite time as well, like what your investment horizon is if you mm-hmm. wanted to potentially as an example. Like the reason I'm talking about this is because I know investors who literally target projects like this and they go and buy massive amounts of residential homes and lease them out to literally to the companies, right? So like and for as staff housing, right? Because the, a lot of these guys in the STEM or in, you know, in the mining work, they're not staying there. They're like two weeks on, two weeks off. They have like crazy schedules like that, right? Because it's really physically demanding work. And so you can, I mean, the house is going to get, you know, to to circle back to the very beginning of the conversation, the house is going to get beat up, right? You're not going to like, it's, you know, it's a bunch of rough and tough guys who are, you know, out working in the mines and coming home every day just to, to, you know, shit, shower and shave and, and then go back and repeat the process again. And so, you know, you're probably not going to get it back the way that you gave it away. But the reality is you're probably going to get it back paid off, right? That's how crazy some of the cap rates are. Like I know an investor who, you know, similarly was buying properties in in between Sudbury and, and Timmins as an example, because there was a major highway project going on there. And they were leasing these out to the highway. There's a, similarly a wind turbine farm south of Sudbury, same thing, leasing houses out to the people working on those. If you know... And I think the project was five years long. It ended up being extended to like seven years because nobody ever delivers anything on time. But he had leased the house out for, and he expected to get all of his money back within a five-year period, right? As an example. So the house fully paid for, that's buying it at like a 20% cap rate, right? <laughs> like, yeah. And so even if the house, you get it back, it's burned to the ground. You got it for free, right? So, you know, hypothetically. So if you're trying to establish these theses, you know, you could say, okay, I want to buy a house outside of the Raglan mines, but I only have, you know, five years left, basically. So if it doesn't pay, if it's not going to pay for itself by the time 2027 rolls around, then it's not a good investment because I would expect that the economy will start to unwind in that area after that mine. In a lot of cases, they're not just like shutting these mines down, right? They run out of minerals, right? So, you know, so some of these other areas, you know, Voices Bay as an example, you got a little bit more time. You got 10 years in the market, 12 years in the market that you could potentially get exposure to to renting to to somebody working in those mines, right? Yeah, I love that. I just want to take it back since we're kind of getting shorter on on time here. I want to take it back to the original conversation, you know, our our, our controversial buddy over here, our bro, bro does not live like a billionaire. I think it was a, a little bit of a clickbaity title, but it actually really does it really does seem like, you know, him and his businesses could single-handedly have a, a major effect on on the future of, of Canadian real estate, just in the sense of having the ability to use more of the land. So let's just quickly recap that. Like, are these providing, like, what does that information do for people? How can the listeners of this show take what we said, look at what Elon's doing and figure out how do I apply this to the next place I want to invest in? What is Starlink and EVs and, and mining and all, and all this stuff that I don't know about and I don't care about have to do with being a Canadian real estate investor? Yeah. So I wouldn't say that that belongs exclusively to Elon Musk, right? Hopefully like I, not. And, and I would, you know, to quote Ricky Bobby, don't put that evil on me, Ricky Bobby, but also to quote Kanye West, you know, no one man should have all that power. And he doesn't. But wow. The reality Sorry, is, did you just quote Ricky Bobby, Elon Musk and Kanye West in the same like sentence? That. Yeah, it was, it was, I was on a roll there. But, <laughs> you know, we can see technology developing in a certain direction, right? And the SpaceX, Starlink, right? Solar City, these are all things that are going to have an impact on the way that we interact with real estate, with property, with the with the dirt and the the ground that we walk on, right? And build houses on. So there's a couple of different things. Number one is 
the barrier to entry being connected to a power grid, being connected to an internet grid is going to disappear within the next little while as technology develops. I'm not saying that depends exclusively on Elon Musk. I was really counting on Elon to to create a good headline, like you said, and a very clickable podcast title. But we're seeing solar power develop where on-site power generation solutions, on-site battery power storage solutions are really becoming, making it more accessible to develop housing outside of the power grid, right? Similarly, Starlink satellite internet would make the dependence on broadband wires for internet access for the average Canadian far less. I know people who live in like relatively urban rural areas, let's say you can call them suburban, but you know, they'd be in the suburbs and they're on Starlink, right? Just because they could get it. And it's literally better than the broadband internet service that they could get, right? So that connectedness is going to change within the next decade. To me, those are very important trends to watch because from my perspective, they're bullish for a certain type of property, right? You have to understand and think about whether or not the secular shifts are going to drive enough demand to those rural areas and make sure that you pick rural areas that are going to exist, you know, or, or be or have sustainable growth in the foreseeable future. And the way that you can do that is by thinking about the other two components of what we were just talking about with Elon Musk. And those come from Tesla. The one being the autonomous driving, you know, roads matter. You can't just go buy a piece unless your thesis is that you think that autonomous drones are going to be delivering people to their houses within the next 20 years, which I personally don't think. But if that's your thesis, then yeah, go buy land wherever because it'll be valuable, right? But if cars start driving people everywhere within the next, I mean, most people would probably imagine that's going to happen within the next 20 years, right? Then the dependence on certain areas begins to matter again less, right? If we start producing those cars or parts of those cars in Canada, right? Through mining, through mineral exploration, lithium ion, lithium brine. I think the biggest lithium mine in Canada is Snow Lake, which is in Manitoba, I believe. And, you know, the Snow Lake CEO, Philip Gross, said, if we don't act now to secure a seamless lithium supply chain from rock to road, the North American car industry will not exist in 10 years' time, you know, to circle back to that exposure that China has to the supply chain. Are we going to create a major industry around these things in Canada, right? Are we going to become world leaders in providing lithium ion, lithium brine? Are we going to be providing battery metals, et cetera, to the US or North American car industry. That to me is the major economic stability for a lot of these rural areas, right? Or sustainability. I mean, I think it's clear what I think. I'm trying to to explore the whole thing and explore a thesis here of like whether or not there's potential to invest in these markets. Some people might just say, you know, if I'm investing on a 20-year horizon, I think urban areas are going to be the most important because we're all just going to become you know, the matrix is going to happen and we're going to have like, uh, what's that called? The technological singularity, right? And everybody's just going to be living in cities or whatever. But it sounds crazy, right? But these are actually things that you have to be thinking about if you're a real estate investor buying for what I would say an almost infinite hold period. But if you're buying for a 20-year hold period, think about what the world looks like today and then think about what you think it's going to look like in 20 years and factor that into your investment decisions, Right. Love that. I don't have anything other to say on the topic. I did want to just make a quick mention here that we're, you know, we're talking about Canada, across Canada, rural areas. Well, our back end demographics I have up right now, and 
officially, we now have listeners across the country in every province, every territory. We have one listener in none of it. <laughs> I love it. Thank you so much to that one listener in none of it. You know, Northwest Territories, Yukon, Prince Edward Island, Newfoundland, Labrador, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Quebec, Alberta, BC, and Ontario. Thank you to everyone listening across the country. I actually kind of want to know, does it give you city level data? Like I kind of want to know what the, give me like the the 10 smallest markets that we have. Okay. So I'm going to have to go to page 20 here. We've got one listener in the Northwest Territories in Tukoyatakatut, probably butchered that. Is that that's that. the one that people say Tuktoyaktuk, isn't it? That might be it. St. Anthony, one listener in Newfoundland and Labrador. Mingan in Quebec, one. Lachie in Newfoundland and Labrador. Geraldton, Gasp, Fort Chippeway, Bella Bella in British Columbia, Baker Lake in Nunavut. Yeah, so this honestly, cool. this, this it's cool. really cool. I need to see this list, man. You, you will. I've been I've been holding this hostage because I knew you would love it. So, guys, what yeah, we well, want to do? Start flying out there, trying to meet all these people. Like, eventually, that's what we're gonna do. You know, that that is that is a roadshow is planned. But I just wanted to finish off the show by saying one thing. We've come up with a cool idea to do essentially a deal, a show. Well, this is just a soft introduction for for what it's gonna be. But for any real estate agents listening out there. If you are interested in showing and sharing a deal with us and our 40,000 listeners so far, please reach out to us. We want to start doing a deal of the day. So we, you know we do this every Tuesday and every Friday. We want to have a deal of the day and we want them to be across the country in all of these places that we just mentioned, places that I've never heard of that I can't wait to go someday and talk to the people. So if you've got a deal that you want us to analyze, we've got an amazing analyzer tool. We can talk about your deal on the show. Reach out, emails in the show notes. Yeah. And you don't have to be a realtor to reach out. Sorry, of course not. Yes. We obviously want to use this as an opportunity to promote realtors listings from coast to coast and you know help that to obviously drive revenue so we can continue to bring forward this good show for all of you. But the reality is if you are an investor and you're like, look, We've got this property available in my market in Tuktoyaktuk or in St. Anthony or whatever it is. And I'm wondering if you think this is a good investment. Send it our way. Just send me a realtor.ca link. We'll run it through the deal analyzer that we got from a really cool website called Lendlord, which we'll post in the show notes eventually when we start doing these. And we'll basically come up with a bunch of return metrics and tell you whether or not we think that is a good deal or at what price we feel that that would be a good deal. And we'll, we'll kind of spit out the metrics that it gives you. So we'll start with audience. And if, you know, if realtors start trying to steal all the spots from you, <laughs> so be it. But in the meantime, send us a deal, send us a realtor.ca link and just we'll, we'll try and talk about it on the show. And we'll give you a shout out and a thank you and talk about your deal and your city. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Again, if you have any real estate questions, mortgage questions, reach out to Dan and I. Dan, any final words? Elon Musk, any final words? Oh, okay. Great. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, fellas. See you later. The Canadian Real Estate Ambassador is for entertainment purposes only and not financial or investment advice. Always do your own due diligence. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center, license number 10317, and a partner in G&H Mortgage Group. Agent license is M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker at Royal LePage or Community Realty, a member of Royal LePage Commercial, and a licensee with the Canadian Real Estate Association, Ontario Real Estate Association, and a member 
of the Toronto Real Estate Board.